So over these last couple of weeks, we've begun to look at the subject of vision. And over the following weeks, we'll be looking at vision again. And this week, again, we'll be, we'll be looking at vision. You'll, you might be wondering to yourself, how come we're spending so much time on a vision? Well, each year around this time, and we've spoken about this before, it's very much the beginning of most people's years. There's a calendar year, a financial year. There's an ecclesial year. Um, and then there's the real year. And the real year is defined mostly by the academic year. And uh, there's a real watershed that takes place around this time of the year. People begin thinking about changing jobs. People think about moving locations. People think about uh, maybe thinking about connecting with a local church. And so probably at this time in the year, for most years, we'll be looking at the subject of vision. Because if you're going to make big changes, if you're going to make big decisions, you need to know how to navigate those decisions and how to make the best decisions for yourself and for those with whom you're in deep relationship, your families and your friends. And so that's what we've been doing over these last couple of weeks. The first week, we looked at the role of vision in our life. What does, what does vision do? Well, the scriptures tell us very clearly that what, what vision does is it captures your heart with something that gives you the capacity to take on the disciplines necessary to fulfill the vision. Without a revelation, the scriptures say, people cast off restraint. Well, of course, that negative statement, of course, is balanced by the positive alternative, which is, with a revelation, people can take on restraint. The revelation, the word that God speaks to your heart through a variety of different mediums, but always ratified and endorsed by Scripture, the vision that God puts in your heart is the means by which He contains your heart, captures your heart, and brings you the necessary disciplines. Not, not unpleasant disciplines, but the disciplines necessary to see the vision fulfilled. Last week, we went beyond what it is that vision might do to look at who is the focus of our vision. Showing off a little bit of Apex merchandise there. I don't know whether you can get these anymore, but they're quite good. Um, and last week, of course, looking at the who of vision, we focused on Jesus. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, where the writer to the Hebrews speaks very clearly about what it is that we need to do to fulfill the calling, the sense of the sense of adventure that comes when we read the scriptures and, and find ourselves drawn into the narrative of the heroes of the Old and New Testament. These women and men who did great things, who sought out great prizes for God. These people who were prepared to give their all to see something extraordinary. And as we read those stories, and we'll be looking at many of those heroes in the, in the coming months, as we consider those heroes, of course, our hearts stirred by the thing that stirs their heart. And the writer to the Hebrews says, well, of course, with all of these heroic figures, there's a principal heroic figure. And if you look to him, you'll discover what it is that it is to live out a vision. Jesus is the one. Fix your eyes on him. He is the pioneer and perfecter 
of our faith. The one who reveals the pattern of what it means to follow the vision. And he gives us the pattern of what it means to complete a vision. It's no good starting a vision and then not finishing it. Jesus begins the vision. He's the author of the vision. He's the the pioneer of the vision. But he's the one who, in completing the vision, gives us the the possibility to settle within what it is that he's won through that vision. Because, of course, the vision, having been completed, gives us all kinds of benefits and blessings and boons that we would not normally have without a vision. And so Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, shows us how to reach out to the very margins of our experience, to the very, to the very borderlands of, of what it is that we've known to adventure with him. And then in adventuring with him, discover all that it is that he has for us as we begin to fulfill the very thing for which we have been designed. And so we looked at that last week. So this week, we're going to just kind of break it down a little bit. And next week, we'll do the same thing. What is it like to follow Jesus in the pioneering of a vision? What's it like to to journey with him in the power of the Spirit, informed by the Scriptures, envisioned and inspired by him and his life? What's it like to follow a vision to as it were, the goal of the vision. What's that like? Now, there are going to be lots of you who've been familiar with churches in the past who've given you a whole bunch of programs that you can fit into so that you can fulfill vision. And there's basically nothing wrong with that, but the style of Apex is not to offer programs, but to offer a pattern and a process. The pattern is always to encourage one another to stick closely to Jesus, to allow him and his work to open the way to the Father and through his work find the empowering presence of the Spirit to stay in that relationship with God. And in staying in that relationship with God that is precious and intimate and and very often private. Take that into a community of believers so that together you can find yourself encouraged and supported, challenged and invited into the new thing that God has for you. Not alone, not isolated, not, not like a flagstaff on a bare hilltop as Isaiah put it, but very much in the company of others. Just as Jesus called his first company of disciples, so we together as disciples will journey together supporting and encouraging one another in our individual vision and in our collective vision, which is to follow Jesus into all things. And then, of course, as we do that, we find ourselves journeying together with the people that God has given us into the relationships, into the communities where people as yet perhaps don't know Jesus. The pre-Christians, the people who perhaps have struggled with church, the people who perhaps have wrestled with faith, the people who as yet don't understand the claims and the call of Jesus upon their life. And we, 
through the kindness of the gospel, through the generosity of his grace, begin to share our lives with them and they find their lives strangely drawn to the one that we're following. So that pattern is the pattern that will be lived out in the house churches and the households, in the families and the friendships that you see all across Apex here in-house and online. And you'll see new things, new adventures, new ideas emerging, bubbling up. I was talking to a couple of people about a, a biker gang that they're thinking of starting. <laughs> Apex biker gang, I think I'll definitely join that one. Friday nights with the college students. Fantastic, something just started. And the way that we'll, the way that we'll help to keep that all rolling is that, is that I and the other members of the team here will provide resources, teaching and training in a month's time. Rasonde will be coming up. It's our learning experience. It's an immersive process where we spend a few hours on a weekend together over a couple of weeks and we learn some things that are going to be enormously helpful to us as we think through embracing and navigating our calling individually and as families and beyond. Rasonde is a really huge and important tool in the life of Apex but there'll be other things that will pop up perhaps for a season. Tonight the Discovery Bible Community training group. I kind of call it the training group because there's no expectation that you come to my home on a Sunday evening and then you stay there for the next 10 years because I won't be there. I mean, I'll be here, but I'm just not going to be inviting you every week for the next 10 years. Probably over the next six to eight weeks, if you join me at my place, um, about, say, 6 to 6.30, we'll be there for an hour or so. And what we'll do is we'll study the scriptures that we'll be looking at the next week. And as we look at the scriptures that we'll be looking at next week, we'll be using this method that's used all around the world and that we've begun to really find beneficial here, this discovery Bible method, where there's no person that comes to the group with all of the information because one of the rules of discovery Bible community is that even if you're a trained theologian like me, a pastor, a teacher, you come to the text and the first rule is you're not allowed to bring information that's outside the text. And the reason for that is that we want to make sure that as the Spirit reveals the scriptures that he has written through the writers of the Bible, we receive the voice of everyone that the Spirit is touching. And so as we look at the scriptures, we hear fresh insights. It's amazing for me. I'm in these groups with brand new Christians, and I see things in scripture I've never seen before. And I've looked at these passages who knows how many times. It doesn't mean, of course, that we're not going to have teaching and training like we have here and in other locations. It doesn't mean that those of us who've been trained uh, to rightly divide God's word are not going to be used in those capacities. It's just that this model, which is enormously effective in so many different missional situations around the world, this model is a model that we honor and that we recognize as a way for people who might feel diffident, who might lack the confidence to come to a Bible study because they think, I don't know enough. It gives everybody the opportunity to be on a level playing field 
to look at the scriptures together and know that they're not going to feel foolish about what it is that they share. It's enormously, enormously helpful. Jillian's down there. She's working with the folks in a, in a hostel for homeless women. Catherine's there. She's working with women in the local prison. And their testimony is that as they do this kind of work, they're learning about the Bible as the Spirit speaks to other people who know very little about the Bible, but they're ready to hear God speak to them. How exciting. And it's going to be exciting to see uh, the Green household begin to use this kind of methodology as the weeks unfold uh, with the students. So you'll see Apex offering resources and offering support and encouragement as we take on a vision. But we're not going to give you a program. Discovery Bible Community is probably the closest thing to a program you'll ever see because we want to make sure that people have a way of learning how to do this thing so that they can reach out to their pre-Christian friends and, and their, their other friends who've perhaps been damaged or, or hurt by their experience of church and find that God is speaking to them personally as well. So we're not going to have programs. We are going to have patterns. We are going to have a process of what it means to follow Jesus But what is it that Jesus wants us to do as we follow him in the vision that he begins to birth in our hearts? Well, as the writer to the Hebrews continues with the text that we looked at last week and we have before us today, you see that the the writer begins to dig into what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to take on those disciplines necessary to see the vision unfold, and then he kind of comes in with a little bit of a surprising scenario. The people that he's writing to, the Hebrews that are addressed by this letter here in the New Testament, the Hebrews are a group of Jewish believers who are following Jesus. They're they're Jewish followers of Jesus, And, and as such, they're people who are seeking to balance the history of their people with the hope that Jesus is providing, the, the legacy of their life together as the people of God, with the illumination of the gospel that Jesus has brought to their lives. And this balancing act is causing great challenges for them because their, their Jewish sisters and brothers are beginning to notice that things are changing in their world. This is the first century probably in, in, in the Roman territory called Palestine. We would call it the Holy Land or Israel. And things are beginning to change. The, the zealots are now not a fringe group that nobody's heard of. They're not just insurgents and terrorists. They're now people who have taken up a principal role within the political life of Israel. They're affecting and influencing even the religious elite The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are beginning to be influenced by the message that they carry and they hold. And of course, there's all kinds of trials and difficulties ahead. But the big challenge that the zealots are bringing is this challenge. If God is God and God has given us this land, what are we doing living under the occupation of imperial Rome? We need to get rid of them. 
And so more and more, the stirrings of war are beginning to occur in the hearts and minds of the people to whom the writer of the Hebrews is addressing his message. And of course, the writer to this group of people knows the prophecies of Jesus that as part of the work of God's disciplining hand on his ancient people, the land will be lost. There will be another exile. Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple raised to the ground. And so the writer is trying to help them maintain their sense of identity and continuity, but at the same time trying to help them understand that the things that they've depended upon, the things that they've found identity and security in, they're going to be shaken to the ground. And they may well be gone very soon. Once more, the writer says, once more, God will shake both the heavens and the earth so that what is unshakable is revealed. The great earthquake of the Roman invasion is coming to them in just a few years. The catastrophe of Jerusalem falling, of the temple being raised to the ground, and the people of Israel scattered to the four winds is going to take place in the, in the coming years. And nothing is going to stop it. And in that situation, as the drumbeat of war is heard in the heartbeat of the people, in that context, the writer wants to reveal to them that they can continue to fix their eyes on Jesus and follow him to the fulfillment of the vision that he's putting into their hearts. Now, it's not as great a catastrophe that we have suffered recently, but it is catastrophic. None of us have been in a pandemic before. None of us have seen the enormous upheaval of seismic change that has so rapidly gripped the nation and the world. Social change at a rate that really no one could have ever predicted. Economic pressures and, and stresses that, that really no economist would have been able to predict. And geopolitical ructions and earthquakes, the like of which we've not seen for generations. And yet here we are, each day, in the midst of the shaking. And in the midst of the shaking, the, the usual way, the, the common way, the familiar way for us to function is just as the group of people that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing. The thing that we would normally do is we cling to the things that we find security in. We cling to the things that we find our identity in. And although we may associate them with God, actually, the things that we're clinging may be the, may be the things where we found God, but they're not the same as God. So it may be that you found God in your local congregation, 
But you come back post-COVID, and the congregation's completely changed. Churches are closing all over America. The average congregation has declined between 30 and 50 percent. I mean, this is an earthquake. And it's not possible to, to think of it in any other terms. This is a real shock to the system. Now, you know, we've seen God replant this church in a way that is quite miraculous, and we're incredibly grateful for his generosity towards us. But it's a different church to the one that we had pre-COVID. I mean, I was, I was speaking to a, a member who's been here for many years the other day, and he said, I literally, I literally came in on a Sunday and didn't recognize anybody. What is going on? It's a shocking feeling. And that's just the tiniest percentage of the world of change that is taking place for all of us. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't watch television news anymore. It's like, it's like watching a train wreck every day. You just don't want to do it anymore. I mean, I've gone back to the old-fashioned thing of reading a paper. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I can't do all that stuff. It's overwhelming. So I read the paper and I kind of get a sense of what it is and I try to read journalism rather than propaganda, which is incredibly different. And, and as I do that, I come back to this continuous sense that like the people being addressed in the book of Hebrews, we're going through seismic change. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds people that in the midst of the shaking, it's really important not to become self-centered. Because when everything's shaking, you tend to cling to the things that are most familiar, and then you find that the things that are most familiar have changed too, and then eventually you think, just for survival, the only thing you can do is hang on to yourself. But the writer says, don't, don't stop visiting the prisoners. Don't stop welcoming people in your home. Don't, don't stop having compassion for the people around you. Be compassionate. Continue to build community. Remember that there is a connecting story that gives you a bigger picture than the one that everyone else is, is overwhelmed by right now. And in the midst of a world where the landscape is changing and the maps don't work anymore, remember that you have a compass who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he's the compass who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we discover him in the scriptures and in those that taught us the way of Jesus, then we should honor those that teach us the way of Jesus and we should, we should stick with that understanding of the unchangeable character of Christ and in that, follow him. Now the writer to the Hebrews recognizes that that. In the midst of all of this, this desire to go back to familiar things has caused the, the Jewish followers of Jesus to disconnect from 
the ways in which they worshipped and the ways in which they became familiar with gathering with their Christian brothers and sisters and, and began to go back to the old liturgy, liturgies and laws of their ancient people. And he said to them, look, don't go back to those things because they no longer provide you life. And then he says this, and this might be the longest introduction to a reading of a passage you've ever heard <laughs> at Apex. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, says the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Do you see what the writer's saying? We don't know who the writer is. You've heard my opinion on it. I think it's Paul. We'll only find out in heaven that I'm right. But there's, there's, no, there's no settled opinion as to who the person is who's writing this, but whoever it is, they've got an amazing insight into the scriptures, both old and the emerging new. And so he's saying, look, on the day of atonement, the priests offer a sin offering for themselves. They, they lay their hands on a bull. The bull is sacrificed. The blood of that bull is taken into the most holy place, only occurring on that one day. The high priest goes and offers the blood of sacrifice for himself and for the other priests. And within the unfolding majesty of the Day of Atonement, rituals and, and worship, sacrifice for all the people. But for the priests... The bull that has been sacrificed is not then, as it were, offered as a fellowship meal for others to enjoy. No, the, the carcass is taken outside of the camp and is burned until there's nothing left. And the ash is lost to the wind and to the earth because the offering for sin needs to be complete and needs to cover all things. And so Jesus carries a cross through the streets of Jerusalem outside the city gate. And he comes to a place called Golgotha. And there... The people who had recently been rebuilding Jerusalem from the time of Herod the Great and maybe even beyond had dug out a quarry in the limestone, the golden limestone of, of Jerusalem that you can see everywhere. And as they dug out the quarry, of course, like all quarries, it was a horseshoe-shaped kind of excavation. 
And as they were digging from both sides, taking out the stone and rebuilding Jerusalem, they came to a place in the quarry where fissures and faults were so prominent that they had to leave that rock. And that rock, as the horseshoe developed from both sides, created a platform, a promontory, that came out like a stage. People didn't know what to do with it. And so when the quarry was no longer used, the rich and the famous of Jerusalem looked at the quarry and said, well, someone has excavated for us a perfect location for our family tombs. And so the rich bought up portions of this old quarry and they dug their family tombs. And so there in the quarry face, you could see the tombs of, of those who were the wealthy from among the people of Jerusalem. But there was still this strange promontory sticking out into the quarry. And when the Romans arrived, they said, this is a natural amphitheater. And where that rock has been left by the builders, we could, we could use that for public executions. And so there, in the quarry, the rock the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The rock that the builders rejected became the cornerstone of faith. This verse that Jesus quotes and people are thinking, I don't know, what is that? Peter quotes it when he's before the Sanhedrin, kind of wondering what that means. But of course, if you went to Calvary, and you looked at what it was that the builders used and what it was that the builders could not use. It was the place where the builders were unable to use the rock that you'd find the cross. A symbol, as it were, of what it was that Jesus was offering as he went outside the city because in the minds and the hearts of the average Jewish person, Everything inside the city is blessed. Everything outside the city is cursed. And so Jesus, of course, is crucified with the criminals who were cursed. And so as to undergird this, outside the city, where there were little valleys, little bluffs and defiles that, that created the space where Jerusalem and Mount Zion could be found, they found a place where in ancient times, wicked kings had sacrificed their children to the god Molech. And no one wanted to go anywhere near it. And so they, they turned it into a rubbish dump, just the other side of Calvary. And that rubbish dump grew and grew over the generations and centuries. And like rubbish dumps all around the world, the 
compacted debris became very hot and in time fires would burn with unquenchable flames. And so there would always be this pall of, of smoke over the valley Hinon. And that valley Hinon became the symbol of lostness, the symbol of sin and separation, and was called in the tongue of the people Gehenna, which is the name for hell. Jesus went to hell, and in the shadow of hell, gave up his life. Now that's an amazing truth, and it's a, a wonder of the good news. But then, the writer says something shocking. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Are you kidding? Let us go to him? I mean, I meet Jesus in worship. I, I, I like meeting him there. Well, that's good. I mean, I like, I like meeting Jesus in my quiet time. Good, that's good. I like meeting Jesus in the sunrise. I have the coffee and the sun is rising. I love meeting Jesus there. Well, I'm more of a sunset person. I, I don't really get up that early, but I, I like my coffee. Maybe not coffee because, you know, I like to go to sleep at night. I like my whatever it is. As the sun goes down, I, I like meeting Jesus there. Jesus is in lots of places. He's, he's omnipresent by his spirit. But the writer says, there's one place where Jesus is, and you need to go and meet him there. And it's outside the camp. It's outside of the familiar. It's outside of the secure. It's outside of the, of the city that gives you your sense of security and identity. It's amongst the lost and the cursed and the broken and the lonely. And you say, I don't, I don't know whether I can do that. That's right. You can't and neither can I. One of the things I'm going to do on a Sunday as well as have, the, as have the, uh, the Discovery Bible Community opportunity for those of you who want to learn how to do it over these next few months, it'll just be maybe eight weeks, is to begin a huddle. Now there's huddles for house church leaders that I'll be doing on a, on a Tuesday night and um, we're going to have great fun doing that in-house and online and uh, all of you house church Leaders, house church shepherds will be part of those huddles with me, and I'm, I'm just really desperately looking forward to spending that time with you. But there are some among us who are the early exponents of what it is that I'm talking about. The, the people who are the pioneers who, who want to follow Jesus outside the city, into the margins. 
And it's a really challenging and often threatening environment. And of course, it's the kind of thing that I've done a lot, Sally and I, over the years, and so we've become familiar with the necessary challenges and difficulties that are, that are part of that. And so I'm going to have a huddle between five and six on a Sunday evening at my place, in my house, or online, where I just encourage those who are the early pioneers of this. Because here's the thing, if you want to do it, then talk to Gillian about going to the... Um, the hostel and talk to Catherine about going to the prison and talk to Chris Horlocker about doing shoes for the shoeless and just have a go. You don't have to, you don't have to get a tattoo that says I do this forever. You don't have to give blood that says, you know, this is something I'm deeply, deeply committed. Just try it out. Have a go. They'll be more than happy for the encouragement and support, I can tell you. And there's others as well who are reaching out and they're trying out kind of new things. Find out who they are. They're people in your house church. They're, they're people in your community. And you can join with them in what it is that they do and the adventure will be great, I can tell you. And there will be support and encouragement from me and from other members of the leadership and staff to ensure that that's done in a way that's helpful and wholesome. So you can follow the pioneers. And the pioneers are usually drawn from the ministries of the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist. But of course, the vast majority of people within the body of Christ are not functioning with those ministries. They're usually functioning with teaching and, and pastoral ministries. And if you're not sure all of what it is that I'm talking about now, then Resonde in a month's time will explain everything in detail, and you will be amazed how much of the New Testament comes alive when you realize that it's talking not to you, but about you. When you begin to identify what it is that God has shaped you for, what it is that he's carved out for you, and how it is that he's laid a path for you, because you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. It's going to be so much fun over these next couple of months as we begin to engage with these things. And nobody's going to expect you to suddenly start a ministry that has international reach just you and your friends and family reaching out. Who else would teach you? Well, it's the people who often, they, you maybe think of them as naive, but maybe they just have a childlike disposition to people who are not like them. My kids, as they've grown up, have always been the most adventurous amongst us. They don't mind who they talk to. They'll just go and talk to anybody. And you're kind of thinking, ooh. And amongst their friends at school, of course they talk to people who are like them, but often they reach out to people who weren't like them. And so one of the things that we did as a family was to have Wednesday tea time. That's a very English kind of sounding thing. It sounds like something out of Downton Abbey. I can assure you it wasn't. What, what that means amongst the northern working class people that I was part of, this kind of industrial heartland of England, was that you would have maybe sandwiches or toast. 
tea's always involved, so there's a cup of tea there. Maybe baked beans on toast or something like that. The kids would, would bring their friends home from, from school on a Wednesday evening. We'd hang out, mess around, play football, soccer, whatever. And then we'd have tea together. And we'd eat whatever it was that was available and provided. And the, the kids that were my children's friends loved it. They just loved coming. It was just kind of an informal thing. And we look back on it a, a couple of years ago with, with our kids. We were just sitting around chewing the fat. I think all of their friends became Christians. I think all of their friends became Christians. Because why wouldn't they? It's way more fun being a Christian than anything else. You see, they were leading the way for Sally and I as we wanted to adventure into the idea of following a vision. We fixed our eyes on Jesus as we saw Jesus in our children and they were leading the way and they were making the connections. And as they made the connections, we were able to bring them back into a safe environment and there just live the life of Jesus with them and those children became Christians. Of course they did. As a group of people, we're going to learn more and more of what it means to see Jesus in the pioneering spirits, to see Jesus in the ones who are leading us to the margins, to the frontiers, to the places where we, where we need, to, need to go to meet the majority of the people. Because I promise you, however representative we are, we're still the minority in here. And there's an awful lot of people out there who simply don't know Jesus, and we want to see the whole of heaven populated. Why should we have it to ourselves? One last thing. I know it's a kind of a weird sermon because it's like me just rambling, and you think, well, I think most Sundays are you rambling, aren't you? On a Tuesday evening, we're going to begin a prayer time. Now, in the mornings, if you join me at 8.30, and it's 8.30 because that's the time that works for me in my schedule, you'll join me and what I call the prayer team. So there's a, maybe 20 people that orbit and rotate through, lots of people online, and you can find the links on the website to join us. It's great fun. You get to find out what it is I'm going to be preaching on the next Sunday because I usually look at the passage in the last five minutes of our time of prayer. It's 30 minutes. And a lot of people do it on their way to work. People do it driving on their way to work. I'm not even sure that's legal. But um, we do tell them not to close their eyes when they're praying. And, and as, we, as we pray together for those, those 30 minutes, we get a sense of what it is that God is doing among us as a people. Well, that's great. It's kind of, it's kind of the ministry of the church of Apex. It's, that's what the prayer's all about. But as we began to think about that, we tried a couple of ways of thinking about the mission of the church of Apex. And we tried some evening times on Zoom and a couple of people would join me, but never quite kind of took off. And so last Tuesday, with the help of a variety of different people, Missy Hamilton and Emma Garcia being uh, principal agents in all of this, we gathered in here for the first Tuesday. It, in, in different communities, in different cultures around the world, it's called a different thing. If it was in Korea, it would be called a prayer mountain. If it's, um, if it's in Nigeria, where I learned it, it's called a Holy Ghost Night. 
If you're in Uganda, it's called flow prayer. Flow, I like flow prayer. It's a good one. And what it is, it's, it's worship that continues for an hour or so. Just continuous. And in the midst of that, we read the scriptures out loud. Somebody comes with a microphone, read them out loud. Two or three people share what it is that they think the scriptures are directing us to pray about. And as we pray, God fits together through the sung worship, through the spoken word, through the prayers that are offered, a kind of tapestry of an outward-looking intercession towards the community. And we didn't, want to, we didn't want to get a whole bunch of people excited about this and it just flop. So we tried it last week and it wasn't a flop, it was amazing. And we have the children there and they've got their own things, they can do some coloring in over there and the adults who like coloring in, we've got something for them as well. So we've got devotional coloring books for adults and um, it's great, you know, and we've got, if you want to take communion during it, it's great, we've got all that. And people tend to be slightly more mobile in the prayer time. I mean, I'm much more mobile than I would be, you know, on a Zoom screen. So it's, it's a bit more dynamic. It's not frightening at all. It's just kind of fun. And the idea of this prayer time on a Tuesday night, right before the house church leaders and house church shepherds huddles, is to give them a chance to come in for a few minutes if they want to. And other people opportunity to come in if they want to but for us as a church to say we need to look out in our prayers and look to the horizon and look to the new things that God's wanting to do among us we used to do this back in Shepherd this is the last thing I'll say today I think it's probably time for lunch we used to do this back in Sheffield when I was back there as a young pastor in the north of England we'd seen the largest church in in the UK grown, thousands of people, and the average size church in the north of England at the time was 23, and we had thousands of people, and we had taken over the bankrupt nightclub in the middle of Sheffield called The Roxy, where people like the Rolling Stones had played, and it was great fun. It still smelt of beer when we went in there, and when we left it, it still smelled of beer. I mean, it's just been you know, soaked in alcohol and who knows what for decades. But we would do a whole night of prayer from time to time, and in the middle of the prayer time, about at 2 o'clock in the morning, the young people, students like you guys, they, um, they would say, okay, Mike, we're going to go out onto the streets. And I went, okay, what are you going to do? And they said, we're going to take bottles of water and bars of chocolate for all of the kids who are coming out of the clubs at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, why are you taking bottles of water and bars of chocolate? And they said, well, they're going to be pretty depleted. They're going to need some water, and they're probably going to need some sugar. And I went, wow, that's cool. And what are you going to do? And they said, well, just do that. And if they start asking us anything, we'll talk to them about Jesus. And I said, do you think they'll be drunk? And they said, yeah, a lot of them. But a lot of them won't, because a lot of them don't drink. They just go and have a good time. I said, oh, okay, good. And what else are you going to do? And they said, well, we thought we'd bring them back to the prayer meeting. I said, it's a fairly exotic Christian environment, isn't it? And they said, no, no, it'd be great. So each time they would go out. And sure enough, they'd go out in little teams, and they'd go to 
it, there, was a, there was a kind of famous movement that, that came out of there that emerged into various different kind of rave music stuff like Café Del Mar and various other things. But the Gatecrasher crew were the, were the ones that were the, the kind of real hardcore club guys. So they go to Gatecrasher and one night they brought a whole bunch of young people back. And we were in the middle of praise and prayer. And, you know, we'd been there for eight hours already. So we started at six in the night and finished at six in the, in the morning. And so lots of us are thinking, you know, it's not going to be long now before we go. I'm going to get some breakfast and go to bed. And here come this whole crowd of young people. And I said to the guys who'd gone out on the streets, now what are we going to do? And they said, we're going to have a fire tunnel. And I said, great, what is that? They said, what we're going to do is we're going to line up and we're going to ask them to come in at one end of the tunnel and we're going to pray for them as they walk, dance, fly, jump through the tunnel and then ask them at the end whether God met them. I said, okay. <laughs> so we did that and we got about 50 people on one side of the tunnel and 50 people, so there's about 100 people there. And then all these young people, and they just kind of went through the thing, and people would pray blessing on them and read the scriptures to them and prophesy over them, and they went all the way through. And people were overwhelmed with the sense of the love of God. One guy, I mean, I thought he was having an epileptic fit. I thought, oh no, what have we done? And he just went out, and he's kind of shaking. And, and I, I went over to him and said, are you all right? And he said, I, whew, I think I met Jesus. I said, fantastic. Do you want to get up now? And he said, I, I don't want to get up. This is amazing. This is better than any high I've ever experienced. He's one of the leaders of the church in Sheffield today. He got up, not only a Christian, but so changed by God that he's led who knows how many other people. To know Jesus. I'm not saying we're going to do stuff like that on a Tuesday night. I'm simply saying, I'm simply saying that as we begin to intercede and look to the horizon, maybe God will give us some really fun stuff to do together. Because I promise you, that's really fun and really worthwhile. Here's the challenge for the day. Are you ready to go to where Jesus is outside the camp? Are you ready? Because the writer says, here we have no lasting city. Because we're looking for a city that's to come. Let's pray.